Please take your Bible, would you please? And let's go over to Psalm chapter 7 as we continue our series here in Joint Heirs on Psalms, Certain Truth for Uncertain Times. And this brings us to Psalm 7. If you remember quite clearly, when we were back in Psalm 6, David was struggling with sin, his own personal sin in his life. And of course, Psalm 6 then became a, a cry out to the Lord for the Lord to rescue his soul from the chastisement that God will bring upon his people when they sin. And we said that chastisement is different than punishment. It's not the same thing as that. Punishment is something that the Lord took upon himself in the form of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for us. But he will discipline and or chastise his children if they persist in sin. We're not paying for our sin, but he's disciplining us for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of holiness or Christ's likeness. Now in Psalm 7, we've entitled this, Vindicating the Innocent Before a Righteous Judge. In this particular psalm, David is no longer struggling with his own personal sin. In fact, the opposite is true. David is actually struggling from the standpoint that he's innocent. He is innocent. So let's take a look at Psalm 7 here in verse 1. O Yahweh, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, lest he tear my soul like a lion, rendering me in pieces where there is none to deliver. O Yahweh, my God, if I have done this, if I have, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to him who is at peace with me, or have plundered my adversary without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life down to the ground and cause my glory to dwell in the dust. Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger, lift up yourself against the fury of my adversaries, and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the congregation of the people encompass you and over them return on high. Yahweh judges the peoples. Give justice to me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tests the hearts and the minds. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and prepared. He has also prepared himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and gives birth to falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own skull. I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. This psalm is about vindication. And vindication is a wonderful biblical truth. When the perfect judge of the universe justifies your innocence, 
it is a wonderful truth. To vindicate means to be set free from allegation or blame or culpability, to substantiate your innocence. And still further, the idea of vindication in the Psalms goes beyond just simply confirming your freedom from guilt. It also goes on to affirm that God is the final judge, meaning that he will protect and defend you from malicious, false attacks against your innocence. God does not merely pass judgment of innocence. He also works to deliver the innocent. He fully vindicates with his protective graces. In many ways, the verb to vindicate is synonymous with the verb to justify. Our God is a vindicating, justifying God. It is a very part of his nature. And this is a truth that is so comforting and encouraging during times of unjust suffering and heartache, especially when evildoers have you in their crosshairs. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 36. In fact, there's a good deal of this psalm that is predicated upon Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 6 says, For Yahweh will render justice or vindicate his people and will have compassion on his slaves when he sees that their strength is gone and there is nothing remaining, bond or free. A few verses later in verse 41, it says, Yahweh says, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. Now, there are many different forms of unjust suffering that you may have to endure in the wicked world in which we live. For example, a believing husband or a believing wife who is falsely accused of being a hypocrite by their unbelieving spouse and their agony and their difficulty goes on sometimes for years. Or a faithful Christian who is condemned at work for using hate speech because they believe the LGBTQIA agenda is essentially evil. Or a godly parent is prosecuted in court for lovingly, not abusively, spanking their child. Or a church that loses their tax-exempt status because they refuse to acknowledge the validity of a homosexual marriage. Or a Christian student who fails a class because they have decided to stand up for the gospel. Or a Christian baker who is jailed for refusing to bake a cake to celebrate the sexual transaction, transaction or transitional surgery of a young child. Or a godly accountant who loses their job over their denial to misrepresent the company's profit and loss statements before the shareholders. Or a faithful young woman who is daily harassed on the job for being a virgin while avoiding the employee's weekend drinking parties. These and a thousand other examples could be given. The righteous will suffer unjustly in this world. That is a guarantee. But you also must remember a profound fact. Take your Bible, would you please, and go over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7. And take a look here. Verse 9, I should say. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. 
Peter says, but you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now look at that carefully. That's who we are as saints. So what are the excellencies when suffering unjustly? What are these? As one commentator writes, when we suffer unjustly and patiently with our trust in God, we are surrendering some very precious things, health, comfort, ease. And so we are showing the excellency of God's superior preciousness. He goes on and says, when we suffer with patient faith in God, we surrender much of our claim to be protected and cared for on earth. And so we show the excellency of God's superior shepherd care for us. When we suffer with patient faith in God, we go without glory of fighting back and winning. And so we show the excellency of God's superior glory that he will share with us someday and the justice of his throne that will one day settle all accounts. When we suffer with patient faith in God, we seem to take a tremendous risk with our life, the only life that most people believe we have to enjoy, and so we show the excellency of God's faithfulness and trustworthiness. We seem to throw away our one chance for happiness by not fighting for more comforts here, and so we show the excellency of God's power to raise us from the dead as a faithful creator and one who has all dominion in the universe. And finally, when we endure unjust suffering meekly by trusting in God, we acknowledge that we are still sinners and we are not earning anything by his patience. And so we show the excellency of God's great grace. You see, denying yourself the comforts of this world in your suffering, shows all the excellencies of your Lord and Savior. So then, what can you do when this unrelenting, unjust suffering just keeps on coming at you? What do you do? Well, you pray what David prays in Psalm 7. And we've divided this into three major movements here. The first one has to do with appealing to Yahweh's deliverance, that's in verses 1 and 2, appealing to Yahweh's deliverance. The second movement, appealing to Yahweh for a determination, that's in verses 3 through 9. And then the third and final movement is appealing to Yahweh's defense, that's in verses 10 through 17. Now, this is a magnificent psalm for believers who are convinced that they are being falsely persecuted and they are in need of the Lord's rescue. So let's take a look at this first and foremost. Let's see if we can take a look on how this appeal can be made. First is there is appealing to Yahweh for deliverance. Appealing to Yahweh for deliverance. That's in verses 1 through 1 and 2. So there we go. Let's see what happens here. There we go. So let's take a look at the historical background a little bit of this psalm to help us understand it a little bit better. The superscription of this psalm describes a man named Cush who is a Benjamite. This means that he was from the 
tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin is one of the smallest of the 12 tribes of Israel. It made up the descendants of Jacob's youngest son. We know that from Numbers chapter 1 and verse 36. In the Old Testament, the tribe was often referred to as uh, being Benjamin. Uh, Though small, the tribe of Benjamin played an incredibly, very significant and important role in Israelite history, particularly in in their conduct as great warriors. King Saul himself was from the tribe of Benjamin, and even the Apostle Paul twice refers to himself as a descendant of that tribe in Romans 11, 1 and Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5. So the Benjamites were a very small but very influential tribe. The name Cush that's used here in the subscription refers to an individual who was most likely a member of this tribe that aligns with King Saul. So the historical context of this psalm is a time when David was being hunted by Saul's warriors and particularly um, a very powerful man by the name of Cush. Now let's look back at this historically for a moment. Remember, if you know anything about your Old Testament biblical history, that Saul was intensely jealous of David. Why? Well, because David was known for slaying giants, because David was a very popular man, young man among the people, especially the women. The women of Israel were chanting, Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. In fact, in order to see this, we need to go back for a moment, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 18. Let's go back to 1 Samuel 18 just to set a little bit of this context. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 7 says, And the women sang as they were merry and said, Saul has struck his thousands and David his ten thousands. And then in verse 8 it says, Then Saul became very angry, for this saying was displeasing in his eyes. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Now, Saul was the only supreme king, and yet they were giving David greater glory. In anger toward David, he was completely unjustified because David had no desire to upstage, nor did he have a desire to usurp Saul's kingship or to take his throne. David was a very loyal subject of the king, but Saul's jealousy grew to the point that he wanted to kill David. I have counseled a number of older men who became intensely jealous of younger men, very talented, coming along and replacing them. That became a serious problem. This was Saul's problem. Why was so Saul so easily threatened? Because, you must remember, he had clearly disobeyed the command of God. In fact, he spared the life of Agag, who was king of the Amalekites. And God had had talked about the fact that he was not supposed to spare anyone at all. In fact, if you're still in 1 Samuel, go back to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15, verse 2, it says, 
Thus Yahweh of hosts, I will punish uh, Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him um, on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, infant and nursing baby and ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That's pretty comprehensive destruction. That's, that's everything. Well, then look at verse 8. 1 Samuel 15 and verse 8. And he seized Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag. And the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and they were not willing to devote them to destruction, but everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Which demonstrates that Saul's heart was really on gaining lots of wealth. He destroyed all the worthless stuff, and he kept all the really good stuff, is what he did. Just the opposite of what God had said. If you go down to verse 22... Samuel now condemns Saul, and he says, um, and Samuel said, has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than fat of rams. And by the way, to obey is better than sacrifice is exactly what David now prays in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba because he realizes he could go and bring sacrifices to God, but he had not been obedient. He was afraid that God was going to withdraw his affection from him because of his sin, as he had done with Saul. Verse 23, for rebellion is as the sin of deviation, and insubordination is as wickedness and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. Wow, that's pretty serious. Dropping down to verse 28. So Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, speaking to Saul, and he has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Also, the eternal one of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. God knows what he's doing. So the prophet Samuel pronounces Yahweh's judgment upon Saul that the kingdom will be taken from him and will be given to David. In 1 Kings 16, David is anointed. Or excuse me, 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed. And then Yahweh's spirit then is taken from Saul in uh, verse 14 of 1 Samuel 16. It says, now the spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul and an evil spirit from Yahweh terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. It's talking about a person feeling, living with anxiety and panic attacks. This was Paul. He was being terrorized by an evil spirit in this particular case. An evil spirit sent from Yahweh strikes great fear and anxiety in Saul's heart. However, before David assumes the throne of Israel, he ends up having to serve in the court of Saul, serving in the court of a man whose heart was full of fear and anxiety. This is where Saul's jealousy grows and it's nurtured against David. 
Later on, then in 1 Samuel 17, David kills Goliath, and then he becomes best friend with Saul's son, Jonathan, and eventually, horror of horrors, marries Saul's daughter. That must have been an agonizing wedding for Saul. It was terrible because he hated David. From a pure human perspective, Saul had every reason to be fearful and to hate David on so many levels. Therefore, he tries desperately on multiple occasions eventually to kill him. Now know this, dear Christian, sometimes the unjust suffering that you're experiencing reveals more about God's displeasure with your oppressor than with you. With your oppressor. You are the innocent party in this case. Now who is Cush? We're still in the subscription. Who is Cush? Well, we do not know for sure other than the fact that we can surmise that he served at the behest of Saul. Much earlier in biblical history, Cush was the name of the son of Ham, the grandson of Noah in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 8. Later, it was the name given to the land of Ethiopia, south of Egypt and east of the Red Sea, the land of Cush. But here in Psalm 7, it refers to a man who is a key figure who brings undeserved oppression on David, Cush is leading a powerful force of men against David who are acting upon the orders of King Saul. So now you understand. This helps you to understand the historical setting of this Davidic song. It says in the subscription there, uh, a Shagayan of David. It's a word that means irregular in the Hebrew. Um, probably inadvertent or wanderings. So this is a psalm of David, a Shagayan, during a time when he was wandering inadvertently around seeking safety from Saul's jealous wrath. Wow. Now, that brings us to the urgent plea for deliverance here in verses 1 and 2. And you can see it. Notice that David begins pleading for Yahweh's salvation and deliverance. He likens his oppressor, the man Cush, on a mission given to him by King Saul is like a lion seeking to tear David to pieces. Notice how David begins with a declaration of absolute trust and faith in Yahweh. He is the one who has taken refuge. Hebrew word there is a present perfect. It means David has um, sought shelter in some rocks or cave, but his real shelter ultimately is in his Lord. That's his real shelter. He has placed his full trust in Yahweh for protection and safety. And David understands his security does not rest in man or in his own cleverness or in luck, or some kind of fate. That's not where his security lies. David doesn't rely on Cush or Saul to suddenly awaken to the injustice of their assault. It is Yahweh alone. That's where his security rests. So David's plea is pretty straightforward. He cries out, save me, at the end of verse 1. He wants to be delivered from his oppressors and pursuers. 
They're the ones who want to kill him and dismember him like a lion's prey. David acknowledged at the end of verse 2 that there is no one else who can ever deliver him. In other words, he realizes his only hope is in Yahweh alone. That's his only hope. Have you ever been to a place in your life where you were utterly helpless? Utterly helpless. Your opposition has all the power, is seeking to destroy you, and you know deep in your conscience that their anger against you is unjustified? Where do you turn? Upon whom can you rely? Is there any possibility for relief and rescue? David's teaching you by a powerful example here when he's in a most desperate situation to call upon the Lord, seeking refuge and his deliverance. This is where your only hope lies. It's like a drowning, drowning man clinging to a life preserver. You've got to cling to the Lord at times like this. Later on in Psalm chapter 31 and verse 1, David has a similar plea. In you, O Yahweh, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed in your righteousness. Protect me. And even further down into Psalms, in Psalm 71, verses 1 and 2, it says, In you, O Yahweh, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and protect me. Incline your ear to me and save me. So you begin to understand, this becomes now a repeated prayer of David when he was falsely accused and attacked by those that wanted to utterly destroy him. That must be your urgent plea as well. Which brings us to the second movement of our psalm. This is an appeal to Yahweh for determination. Abraham Lincoln was once quoted as saying, he who represents himself has a fool for a client. When speaking about defending yourself in court. Well, the second movement of this psalm has David acting like his own defense attorney for himself before Yahweh, the final judge. Only this time, David is no fool. In verses 3 through 9, David presses Yahweh for a determination or a judgment. He wants a decision made. He, he wants to legitimize his appeal for vindication. His argument to Yahweh has two astute arguments. First, it's based upon David's blameless character in this matter, knowing that he is innocent of plotting against King Saul and knowing that Yahweh will not allow wickedness to prevail. That's in verses 3 through 5. But the second one is based upon God's just and righteous character, knowing that he is a righteous judge. He will judge righteously and will judge evildoers because of his righteousness. So let's look at this first one first, which has to do with the appeal of a clear conscience. The first part of this plea to Yahweh in verses 3 through 5 is not what you want to make if you know that you're guilty or even you suspect you're guilty of some sin and that has brought on this onslaught of evil towards you. You've got to be honest with yourself and honest about having a clean conscience. Otherwise, this could easily backfire on David. You'll need to be careful using this type of dangerous argument because it could backfire on you. Scripture tells us that we tend to look at ourselves way too favorably 
According to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 2, Proverbs 21 and verse 2, Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 12, we tend to view ourselves as more innocent than what the reality is. Well, David, here in verses 3 through 5, sets up a hypothetical situation where he, in a sense, totally exposes himself to Yahweh's ultimate judgment. Here he presents a three-part conditional clause with a fourth implied addition. Notice that in verses 3 and 4, he uses the word if three times to present a remote possibility and a fourth time where the conditional if is understood. And also note that the expression that David uses is what would be in ancient times considered a very serious oath. Oath. So look at verses 3 and 4. You could say that David's, this is the vow in a sense. This is the vow that David's made. David in, in this oath is, is vowing to Yahweh. I swear, he says in verse 3, if I have done this, that's the first if. And then later on, if there is injustice in my hands. And then again, if I have rewarded evil to him who is at peace with me. Or if, and this is understood in this fourth part, I've plundered my adversary without cause. If all of this is true, hypothetical situation, then notice the vindication in verse 5. Verse 5 says, let the enemy pursue my soul, overtake me, and let them trample my life down to the ground and cause my glory to dwell in the dust. David must be pretty sure of his own innocence in order to make this oath. Apparently, his enemies have brought a slanderous charge against him, accusing him of rewarding evil to him who is at peace with him. In other words, repaying good with evil. David's own son, Solomon, talks about this in Proverbs 17 and verse 13. And he warns, he who returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. But David had not done this. He was falsely accused. You know, you hear a lot of false accusations, especially around campaigns and political campaigns, right? You hear a lot of things. There's a story that recalls the start of the MacArthur era, where Floridian, uh, Floridian Claude Pepper, one of the Senate's most outspoken liberals, was on the conservatives' hit list along with many other senators. And George Smathers lashed out with some kind of vindictive, and he called his opponent the Red Pepper. And he launched a campaign to expose Pepper's secret vices, Smathers discovered or disclosed that Pepper was a known extrovert and his sister was a thespian and his brother uh, a practicing homo sapien. And also when Pepper went to college, he actually matriculated. And worst of all, he practiced celibacy before marriage. Well, naturally, rural voters were horrified and Pepper lost the campaign. So, now, a liberal pepper should have lost, but not this way. 
The ends do not justify the means. All of those labels were designed to cast disparity and doubt in the voters' mind. So false and wild accusations can destroy the lives of people. And that's exactly what was happening with David. David lays out his case before Yahweh and essentially says that if he is guilty of any of these accusations, then Yahweh should allow David's enemies to overcome him and destroy him until his glory is ground into the dust. David's only recourse is to appeal to the final judge, and he alone could adjudicate David's innocence and clear his name. Now, there's not a whole lot of people that can really do that, do what David has done here, because they know that they're guilty for some reason. But David's conscience is perfectly clear, and he appeals to Yahweh to make the final determination. He is so sure of his innocence that he puts, into, puts it into the form of an oath. I swear that if this is true of me, David vows, then allow my oppressors to destroy me and grind me into the dust. Wow. So he bases his argument upon his own innocent character, and now he moves to another argument in verses 6 through 9, where there's an appeal with a condemning confirmation. The argument here is based upon Yahweh's righteous character. In verse 6, David calls upon Yahweh to come to his aid. He uses three bold anthropomorphic imperatives to reference Yahweh. He says, arise, lift up yourself, arouse yourself for me. So the central idea, he's insisting that Yahweh acts quickly without delay. That's what the anthropomorphism is pointing to. It's not as if the Lord was asleep or somehow resting and didn't notice what, David, what was going on in David's life. This is a poetic, anthropomorphic way in, in order to, to say, act quickly, bring justice to this unjust situation, vindicate my innocence by bringing judgment upon those that are attacking me. Confirm my innocence by pouring out your anger and condemnation upon my enemies. Then look at verse 7. David takes this to a new level by insisting that Yahweh show his vindication publicly before the assembled people of Israel. Why? So that they can testify to the fact that the righteous judge confirms his innocence as well. Then he says, and over them return on high. What does that mean? It's an anthropomorphic way of saying that Yahweh should come down to earth, gather his witnesses around him to establish David's vindication and justification, and then return to rule over them on high. So he's seeking direct divine intervention to set straight what these destructive false attacks and accusations have done to him. Look at verse 8. It is Yahweh's place to act as a just judge. And David needs him to vindicate him now. In fact, in Psalm 9 and verse 4, David speaks of Yahweh in a very similar fashion. Only Yahweh can bring this about because he is the only one who can truly judge righteously. His judgments are always just. 
All of David's reasoning is based upon what he knows about the character and the justice of Yahweh. In fact, this is uh, something that even Solomon speaks about. If you have your Bible for a moment, go over to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27. Proverbs 3 and verse 27, you can see this here. And he talks about the fact, do not withhold good from to whom it is due when it is in your hand to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when it is there with you. Do not devise harm against your neighbor while he lives securely beside you. Do not contend with a man without cause if he has uh, dealt you no harm. So you begin to see it's Yahweh's place here at this particular place to bring this judgment, and there is a warning to anyone who's going to bring genuine oppression upon others. This is what his enemies were doing to David. Now let's go back to Psalm 7 and verse 9. Verse 9 says, at this particular point, he says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. So David asks that a just and omniscient judge such as Yahweh make things right by bringing an end to the evil of his adversaries. We know that God will ultimately rectify all evil, wrongdoing, and justice in this world. But there is also a place, listen, to pray and ask the Lord for temporal justice in your present situation, not just to wait for the eschaton, not just to wait for the end of times to set things right now. Furthermore, in verse 9, David goes on to represent or request that he establish the righteous. He is seeking the Lord to secure the righteous so that they are steadfast and stable. That's what the Hebrew means here. One of the most destabilizing situations in life is when you're falsely accused and you're under attack. And so David is seeking stability. In verse 9, he ends with the declaration, for the righteous God tests the hearts of uh, the hearts and the minds. The terms hearts and minds are not two separate entities in biblical anthropology. They're the same thing. You can see this in Genesis 6, 5, or Psalm 14 and verse 1, or Proverbs 6 and verse 18. It's a henides. That means it's a figure of speech in which two words are connected by conjunction, and they're used to express the same idea, hearts and minds. The heart expresses the very core of the soul in the Hebrew understanding, and the mind speaks of how a man thinks in his heart. So in Scripture, the heart is not the seat of emotions. It is the place where man considers, judges, intends, and thinks. The point is, God righteously tests, examines human hearts and people who are righteous and they have nothing to fear. Proverbs 17.3 says, Yahweh tests hearts. Psalm 11 and verse 5 says, Yahweh tests the righteous. He cannot be fooled since he knows our hearts better than we know our hearts. And if you are righteous, then there is no reason to dread his examination at all. Which now brings us to the third movement of our psalm, appealing to Yahweh for defense in verses 10 through 17. 
Once you can see how God utterly halts the assault of the wicked, it will renew your confidence in the righteousness of God. What God does in restraining and defeating their, right, their destructive intentions reinvigorates trust in his vindictive justice. Look at verse 10, where it says, My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. So he makes an appeal here uh, upon clean conduct. And in this verse, David provides us with a personal application. God is a shield who saves the upright. In the Hebrew, it means my shield rests upon God or my shield is God. God is your protection and your defense like an impenetrable wall between you and evildoers. God will also save the upright in heart. Now think about that. This is not a reference to those who like to appear upright in the front of others. These are the upright in heart. They are genuine, authentic, virtuous, pure of heart. They do not harbor resentment or anger or hatred or bitterness or revenge or unforgiveness in their heart. They are people of the utmost moral excellence. This is a description of what you should be, regardless of your adversity or your adversary. This is how the Christian should always function, guarding the intentions and the desires of their heart. And this is the person that David says he is in this particular case, and God is his shield. Then in verses 11 through 13, there's an appeal upon a convicting character. The question still remains, how does God deal with those who are bent on doing evil to the upright of heart? How does God really deal with them? Well, first, in verse 11, you must understand that God will see to it that their judgment is inevitable. He will see to it that their judgment is inevitable. The Hebrew wording here says that he is a God who is angry every day. You see that in verse 11? God is the righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. That word indignation means angry, rage. We often don't think of God in this way because we love to emphasize his love, compassion, and his grace, but he is angry every day because he is holy. His character is such that his anger burns against those who promote and those who practice evil. This should be a comforting truth for you as a believer since this confirms that wickedness in this world does not go unnoticed by God. He is more than alert, and he sees all things, all the evil that's perpetrated against you. God will repay all evil in his time. Going back to Deuteronomy 32, notice this. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 35 says, Yahweh says, he will judge the wicked. Vengeance is mine and retribution in due time. Their foot will stumble for the day of their disaster is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. Paul later on picks up on that same theme in Romans 12, 19. Never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Listen, your God never sleeps on this. He never sleeps on this. He's on top of it all the time. He notices it. He understands when unrighteousness is going on. Hebrews 10 and verse 30 repeats the same idea. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. You see, and that judgment in this particular case is to judge them in terms of righteousness so that anything unrighteous happened to them, he will then bring his harsh judgment on those who are bringing that unjust persecution. You see, the people who came after David all professed to be followers of Yahweh. They assaulted David out of personal religious zeal. But Yahweh was forced to judge between these professions of faith. And David turned out to be the one who was the innocent party. Then in verses 12 and 13, the second thing you've got to see here is that the anger of the Lord will always be turned into judgment if an evildoer does not repent of his ways. The mention of the Lord's sword, his bow being bent, ready to release the arrow, Deadly weapons indicates anthropomorphically that Yahweh is ready to go to war against the enemies of righteousness. And you've got to remember, Yahweh has never lost a war. Never lost a war. Which then brings us to verse 16. It's an appeal upon counterproductive conspiracy. In verses 14 through 16, David now focuses on how Yahweh will execute this war of judgment on the wicked. In verse 14, David alludes to a childbirth, uh, to childbirth by saying that a wicked evil doer travails in wickedness like a woman in pain of giving birth or conceives mischief or gives birth to falsehood, he says. In other words, such a wicked man cannot help himself. He's like a pregnant woman who is urgently compelled to birth a child. She has no other options. She must give birth. There's no turning back. She has no choice at all to reverse course. When our first child was born, or about to be born, Krista, it was our first experience as parents and going through birth. I remember walking, almost running, with the nurse as they are pushing my wife's bed to the delivery room. And I looked down at her, asking her, are you okay? <laughs> and she looked up to me, and with all seriousness across her face, she said, I want to go home. <laughs> I said, I don't think we can do that. The nurse that's pushing her bed is just smiling from ear to ear. She's heard this before. And she repeated it to me. I want to go home. No, no, no. We've got to see this through to the end. There's no choice. There's no turning back. There's no saying, baby, go back. <laughs> None of that. We've got to see through this. This is exactly what David is saying. It, it is true of those who are bent on doing evil. They have an urgent internal compulsion to do evil and they will never be happy until they do it wickedness mischief and falsehood are their birth children 
In verses 15 and 16, now notice this. The second truth is that you need to understand that Yahweh turns their evil plans back upon the evildoer. He has designed wickedness to have a boomerang effect. And that's a fascinating reality you must not miss. Whatever evil they choose to do will come back upon their own head. God has designed evil to have its own payday. Like a man, in verse 15, who digs a deep pit to trap others, ends up falling into his own pit. Solomon uses the same analogy in Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 8. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and a serpent may bite him who breaks through a wall. Thieves used to do that, because in ancient times, these mud brick homes, you could easily dig through them if you knew where somebody kept their, their jewels or their money and reach through that hole you dig through and steal their money. But on the other hand, God has planted a serpent to bite them. It's just like this. This is the way his God has designed it. They intend to do evil by causing harm to others, but they are the ones who are harmed in the end. Proverbs 28 and verse 10 says, He who leads the upright astray in an evil way will himself fall into his own pit, and the blameless will inherit good. Boy, there are so many other places, like Psalm 19 and verse 15, Psalm 35 and verse 8, Psalm 57 and verse 6. But I want to point you to one in particular. Go over to Proverbs 26 and verse 27. Proverbs 26 and verse 27, where it talks about, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rule, rolls a stone, it will turn back on him. All of a sudden, it'll fall back on him. This is the way God has designed all of this. When people, wicked people, intend evil towards you, God has designed it that the very evil that they've designed for you comes back upon their own head. Verse 16 reinforces David's analogy. When it talks about, back in Psalm chapter 7 and verse 16, it says, his mischief will return upon his own head and his Violence will descend upon his own skull. Just like the story in the book of Esther, the gallows that Haman built for Mordecai became his own place of execution. Wow. This is how our Lord deals with ungodly people who intend to do you harm. The very evil they plot to harm you in the end comes back upon their own head. Now, what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? What we do with it is in verse 17. It's an appeal based upon a cheerful conclusion. Look at verse 17. He says, I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of Yahweh most high. This psalm of exalting the righteous judgment of the Lord ends with David's vow to give thanks and to sing praise to Yahweh most high. There is an inextricable connection between the righteous judgment of God and our motivation for thanksgiving. I want you to see this. Even though David was slandered and attacked, he still expresses great joy and cheerfulness in bringing his Lord high praise. Why? Because he finds his confidence, his comfort, and his security in the righteous judgment of the Lord. The perfect righteousness 
of our heavenly judge means condemnation for the sinner, but comfort for the saint. God's righteous judgments is a great source of thanksgiving for you and I. In 1636, amid the darkest part of the 30 years' war in Europe, a German pastor, Martin Rinkhart, is said to have buried 5,000 of his church members, his parishioners, in one year. That's an average of 15 15, uh, funerals a day. Wow. Wow. His parish was ravished by war, death, economic disaster, and in the heart of that darkness, with the cries of fear outside the window of his family home, he sat down and he penned this prayer for his children to repeat. Listen to his prayer. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things have done, in whom his world rejoices, who from our mother's arms have led us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Hmm. The righteous judgment of God should bring about great, great thankfulness in your heart. Like David, Martin Rinkhart, was a man who knew thanksgiving comes from knowing the character and the righteousness of God, and it doesn't come from outward circumstances. It doesn't come from those things. It comes from here. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Father, this is a tremendous psalm that helps your people who are being harmed, falsely accused, attacked, oppressed, decried publicly, and even threatened with physical harm and death because it reassures us in knowing that you are a righteous God who does not sleep. There is no injustice that goes unnoticed, and there is no fault that will not be addressed And you're a God who works in history that actually takes the evil intentions of mankind towards us and turns them back on the evildoer's head. Father, I pray that that's the kind of confidence and comfort that we need to take, especially as we conclude this year and begin a new year. This we ask in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.